Hello everybody, quick note before we get started, I feel it's important to mention the current pandemic situation facing the world. Uh, I'm thinking of all of you and hopefully this podcast can be a respite from the social isolation. Uh, Take a moment to appreciate that Romeo kills himself because the messenger was quarantined due to plague. It all comes full circle. Anyway, hope you are all doing well and let's get on with the episode. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge, break, to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured, piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. Prologue, Romeo and Juliet, by William Shakespeare. Nearly everyone is familiar with the tragic tale of Romeo and Juliet, two teens in love torn apart by their warring families. These two teens are often put up on a pedestal as the perfect representation of love. There's even a whole movie about it. (coughs) Shakespeare in love. But are they the perfect representation of love? They are young teens who meet, fall in love, get married, and commit suicide in less than a week. On the surface, not exactly what one would aspire to emulate. And yet here we are. It begs the question, is it possible that they were in love that quickly? The play is without a doubt full of beautiful poetic language and packed full of emotion. But does it accurately represent love? These are the questions Eli and I will be grappling with today as we discuss Romeo and Juliet, true love or horny teenagers. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Bard, a Rape Good Scholar podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, also known as Rape Good Scholar on a tiny corner of the internet. I'm joined, as always, by my husband, Eli. Hello. Who has joined me to talk Shakespeare because he loves me and wants to support the things I do. I am the wall you beat your ideas off of. Violently. (laughs) I was trying to make this sweet to be like, oh, because you love me, because this podcast is about love. Oh, it is about love. Today. Maybe. (laughs) So today we're discussing Romeo and Juliet. Ooh. To debate, discuss whether Romeo and Juliet is true love, as in real love, actual love. They love at first sight. They fall in love. Or hormonal impulsive teenagers. Por que no los dos? I, I, I just, I don't. I suppose it could be both, but without a continuation of their lives slash the play, we can't know. That's fair. I mean, there are people who are high school sweethearts that make it into adulthood and have successful happy marriages for the rest of their lives. And there are those that don't. I would I would say most high school romances don't last forever. Sorry, teenagers. Oh no. I have my opinions. I'm perhaps I'm being cynical. But I when I found myself rereading the play 
as an adult and reading it unabridged. So listening, I, I listen to a recording as I read, but having an unabridged version, it was very much impulsive teenagers. And for me as an adult, the tragedy, and I, I suppose... Should, should we leap into background before we leap into arguments? We'll go over the play real quick. Shakespeare gives us a convenient summary. <laughs> Ooh, that's clever. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge, break new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventure piteous overthrows, do with their death bury their parents' strife, the fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end, not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. That is a convenient summary. It is a convenient summary. You know, uh, fun fact, not in the first folio. Really? Yay, Shakespeare 2020 group for pointing that out, because I have not looked at Romeo and Juliet in my first folio yet. My Norton facsimile of the first folio. Facsimile. Facsimile. Words. Part of the reason I didn't feel the need to do a background is that pretty much anybody who knows anything, even remotely about Shakespeare, and even those not aware of Shakespeare, would know Romeo and Juliet. That's fair. The, you know... Young Parental lovers. feud, young lovers, caught between the the rage of their families, murder, suicide, another suicide, other murders. Oh well, yes, there's lots of yeah. So you know the, the I mean that's where the phrase "star-crossed lovers" comes from. Yes, which uh. If any high school students are re- are listening to this, does not mean, you know, destined or sweet or adorable lovers. It means lovers who will not live happily. Well, and I think that's a good segue into the argument of that there is a lot of I guess, glorification of Romeo and Juliet as the epitome of love, of these embody, you know, the embodiment of love. Right. Perhaps they provide an image of a type of love, but I would argue that lasting love is different. What builds the foundation of, for what to me would be true love. When I say true love, I don't mean well, the you... the one you're destined to be with. That that you know everybody has one person, their soulmate. When I say true love, I think of a deep, lasting love. Okay, so I think that's a good place to start because uh, it's hard to have a discussion of whether or not they're a good representation of love without asking what is love and i think that you know kind of in the vein of plato who talks about all the different kinds of love yes 
by pretending that Socrates did it, when really it was Plato. Well, in the vein of Plato and or Socrates, um, I think there are different kinds of love. The love you feel for your friends is different than the love you feel for your family or the love you feel for the person you marry. And while I don't, I'm not super well versed in the different types of love. Well, what's funny to me is I don't think he'd think of the love for the person you marry. That's not love. That's the person you marry. (laughs) Well, that's fair. Uh, But I think that in terms of reflecting on how it might apply today, because today marriage isn't as caught up in... Property. Yeah, property, social climbing, advantageous marriages. Yeah, it's not... you, You don't marry so that the families can combine the farms. Yeah. You marry because you love the person. Right. Which is a pretty recent idea. It's actually around Shakespeare's time that the idea of romantic love and marital love being similar or the same thing started to come up. Until then, it was thought of as weird. I I know... there was a Roman politician who was, I believe, fined for kissing his wife in public. That monster. That monster. Well, and I think that what you probably saw was an evolution, and this is getting a little sidetracked, but an evolution from courtly love. In that in courtly love, while the person you loved wasn't necessarily the person you were married to there was a glorification of love of you were almost made pure by love yeah the act of love of loving someone romantically brought you somehow closer to the divine yeah and so i think that a natural evolution of that is well why don't we marry the one we love because part, one aspect of courtly love, at least originally, was that you never got to really act on your love. Yeah. That you couldn't take it all the way. But what if you could? If it was good and divine to love someone, then why wouldn't a marriage be good? And made divine by love. But anyway, we're getting sidetracked. What? Us? I think... I know, right? We're always so focused. We're focused With our notes and outlines in front of us on the couch. But I think that kind of the glorification of love, in the sense of like we were saying with courtly love, that you're closer to the divine, I see Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, they're very much, once they're struck by their attraction to each other, caught up in it and treat it as the most important thing. Well, and it's very romanticized. If someone were to look for a love poem to, of Shakespeare to read to their lover, I'd say some of the sonnets or Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. You don't want to break out the Macbeth for that. Oh, yes. Although that was a much longer lasting marriage. True. <laughs> so who was really in love? 
The Macbeths are Romeo and Juliet. Well, I don't know if the Macbeths are the best example. I think that when we do look at some of Shakespeare's other couples, you see people who know each other much better. You see Benedict and Beatrice, who, while they haven't always gotten along, they know each other really well. Viola and Orsino in Twelfth Night. You know, while... Orsino gets to know Viola as Cesario, as a man, he still knows her as a person. Yeah, the the person she is inside shines through. Mm-hmm. And you see a similar thing in As You Like It um, with Rosalind and Orlando. Honestly, a lot of his comedies, you do have young lovers who have been meeting together for a long time. Like in A Winter's Tale, we see the nobleman's son meeting up with, you know, a farm girl with whom he clearly has a deep and abiding love. He's been meeting with her for a long time. He's met her parents. Well, even in Love's Labor's Lost... You know, even in the title, love is a labor. While they're all struck immediately with whoever they're most interested in, the women expect them to do the work and get to know them. And even in the end, it doesn't end in, like, a triple marriage, which is rare for a comedy. Yeah, well, the labors are lost. Although there is a lost play. Yeah, I remember the Doctor Who episode. Anyway, I think that all of those couples are much better representations of love than Romeo and Juliet. Why? What is it in Romeo and Juliet that you find unrepresentative? They get married after like two days and die after like five. Okay. Yeah, sure. If you want to throw out the, we got married in two days and died after five. Well, Romeo is in love with a different person. Yeah, that was the first day. A couple hours before meeting Juliet. And I don't... I never got the sense that they actually, like, had a conversation besides, like, doting on each other. That's, that's, that's fair. I think... Really, they meet at the party. They dance. sure. Well, I know they meet and his... They talk and then the nurse pulls Juliet away because her mother wants her. But really it's because that boy was Romeo and you shouldn't be talking to Romeo. Well, yeah, then they both find out who each other is and they're like, no! And then you have the balcony scene. Which is her saying, uh, if only Romeo wasn't Romeo. And then she's going, oh, if only it wasn't Romeo, the son of my father's enemy. And Romeo's like, wait a minute, you love Romeo? I'm Romeo. I love Juliet. And she's like, you do? And then they talk about how much they love being in love and how much love is lovely. That's really their conversation. Every other time they interact, it's through intermediaries. With the exception of that... Well, when they get married and then have sex. Yeah. And then Romeo's exiled. So he's exiled for the majority of their marriage. They consummate the marriage before he goes into exile. 
That is a good point. The only conversation they have is the uh, post-coital, I love you, do you love me, love, 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 and the, frankly, the interaction where they talk about how great love is, and then everything else is the world tearing them apart. Like I said, I just, I don't get the sense that they ever actually get to know each other's personalities at all. And I say that because the audience barely gets to know their personalities. And what we do know, and what I remember reading, is essentially they're impulsive teenagers. Like I said, Romeo at the start of the play is in love with someone else. Yeah, I think uh, the reason, though, that we think of them as these great lovers is that the only interactions we have the chance to see with them they're kind of caught up in that initial rush that i think we've all felt at some point when you just start to love someone just start to feel for them and that is you know that sort of honeymoon period of dating where everything is right everything is wonderful and then eventually that goes away you you always have the fond memories though of that honeymoon moment where you're really in love with your idea of who the person is rather than who they really are and the rest of the relationship is uncovering who they are and thinking do i really want to be with this and hopefully you figure that one out before you get married. Romeo and... Yeah, or die. Romeo and Juliet just kind of stuck with the idea of each other. I think that's a good point because they're stuck in the phase of being in love with the idea of the person. They represent the idea of love. Idealized love. Well, exactly, because they, I think that Romeo and Juliet seem like the perfect love until you've actually been in love. And I think that's why Romeo and Juliet appeal to teenagers so often, because not only do you have the like, my parents just don't understand me type feeling, but you also have the like, this is what love is. It's exciting and wonderful all the time. Yeah, because frequently when you're dating in high school, uh, what you get is that perfect, wonderful feeling, and then it's gone, and oh, everything's terrible, and you break up, and it's awful. And it's rare for teenagers to really stick it out through the patch of, well, we're really getting to know each other now. And that's probably a good thing because a lot of times you're just dating the people who are closest to you that you think are pretty you know oh he's pretty i want to date him Hmm. he's got some weird opinions though well and that's the thing while i think a lot of times physical attraction is the start of a relationship it's also the conversations you have the personality that they have the personality type and do they mesh well together. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that Romeo and Juliet are the stuck in the, you're pretty, I love you. They really are. And uh, I think the reason it's so long-lasting, though, is because everyone 
can really connect to that initial rush of hormones and lust and idealized attraction. Absolutely. And then I think you have not only that. So when you're a teenager, you know, the hormones make any relationship higher stakes. You have all these emotions and you don't know what to do with them. Yeah. Or how to deal with them. And I would point out that it's like that for the boys and the girls. Well, yeah. A lot of times it's get painted as the girls. But no, guys, y'all are crawling with hormones too. And... We make terrible decisions at that age. Well, that's the thing, is that you feel everything very deeply, and everything feels important. Yeah. It feels like everything is all or nothing. It's the end. This is my life now. Yeah. And that's why teenagers tend to be dramatic and angsty and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, to an extent, it's, they don't real, it's hard to realize that... No, you won't. When you're, I mean, when, when you're you, in it. Yeah, when you're in it, it's it's it sucks and it's hard. And it's hard to imagine what life will be like without your parents standing in your way, if they are standing in your way, when, you know, you've always had your parents there. Well, exactly. And I mean, like, sidebar, most of the time your parents are just trying to stop you from doing horribly stupid decisions that are going to ruin your life. Yes. Most of the time. Most of the time. Some some parents suck. You know, when you're in it and it every it everything already feels high stakes. Mm-hmm. Everything already feels intense. Mm-hmm. So then on top of that, on top of just the normal kind of teenage start of life, everything's intense feeling, you have actual stakes in Romeo and Juliet making things intense. You have this family feud. That isn't just like, ugh, I hate you, ugh, I hate you. But, like, people are dying yeah. over this feud. The prince actually has to, like, intervene in cases. Well, yeah. To he, be like, y'all need to calm down. He himself has lost a brace of kinsmen. Anyway. <laughs> so, on top of the feeling of high stakes are actual high stakes. Yeah. And, you know, that's good drama. Good job, Shakespeare. Well, it is good drama, but if you, if you apply it to a real relationship... Oh, that'd be hell. Yeah, it's like terrible. Like, no wonder they never move past the idealized love state. They can't even see each other most of the time. And it's not just like they don't see each other, they can't see each other. They're desperate to, but deadly stakes are keeping them apart. No, without going too far down the Friar Lawrence rabbit hole. If he weren't so focused on just ending the dang feud, he might have like, oh hey, let's have a few secret meetings where you two, like, talk. Yeah, but to be fair, feud over at the end. Friar Lawrence, mission accomplished. Good job, Friar Lawrence. Right. Best Friar ever. Also, Quick sidebar, I think people always, like, because it's quickly overshadowed by the deaths of Romeo and Juliet, but, like, Paris does die. Yes. Like, randomly, right before. And I'm like, poor Paris. It's not random. The, the, the prince lost two kinsmen. The uh, oh. Montagues and the Capulets both lost two kinsmen. What? 
Okay, so Paris is the prince's cousin. So is what's-his-face, Romeo's best friend. Mercutio. Each family, the Montagues, the Capulets, and the princes... Not the princes, but like the prince's family. They each lose two people in the play. Who does Romeo? Who else does Romeo lose? Uh, His mother dies. Remember... Yeah, that's the one that's really out of nowhere. Because at least with Paris, there's a well, duel. I guess I know, but it's like Romeo's like about to go in to mourn Julia, and then like Paris is like, "What are you doing here, Romeo?" And Romeo's like, "Damn, damn, damn, damn!" I'm gonna go cry now. <laughs> <laughs> and then Paris is like, "Yeah, me too," because I got stabbed. <laughs> Seriously, like for like. Honestly, Paris is one of the people in the play I do feel legitimately bad for. Like, he just wanted to marry Juliet. Like, he just wanted to have his advantageous family marriage. And then, like, it's just mourning his fiance, in his his mind, and then this, like, exiled criminal comes back and just stabs him. Oh, man. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway. Uh. I'm just saying. R.I.P. Paris. You got you drew the short straw. Yeah. Um. So it seems seems to me that you're saying that real love is the love with the dirt on it, where you understand the person, you connect to them on different levels, you get what's right and what's wrong about them, and you love them anyways. Well, and I think absolutely, absolutely, I think that's exactly what true love is. And, you know, I don't think that Romeo and Juliet have the time to do that. They're in... Nor do they... I mean, like, not even start. Like, they're at step one of, like, I think you're pretty. Yeah. And then they get married and commit suicide over it. They are very rash. And if you contrast it with, like, Benedict and Beatrice. Romeo doesn't even double-check to see if Julia is still alive before he kills himself. When Beatrice and Benedict are just entering that moment of, oh, is this new thing gonna survive? Uh, when they confess their love for each other. He starts making declarations, saying, oh, I'll do anything you ask for. And what does she ask? Kill Claudio. And he says, no. Not for the wide world. And then you see he's patient. He, he has a patience that Romeo never does. And he's, he understands her and he wants to convince her this is the wrong way. And once she opens her soul up to him and he sees that she's set on this, then he decides this thing he wouldn't do for the wide world, he'd do for her. Well, exactly, and I think to contrast that from the text, I have two kind of excerpts I was looking at. One, Romeo at the start of the play. You have Benvolio talking to Romeo, so Benvolio... Uh, good morrow, cousin. Is the day so young? But new struck nine. Ay, me, sad hours seem long. Was that my father that went hence so fast? It was. What sadness lengthens Romeo's hours? Not having that which having makes them short. In love? Out of love? Out of favor where I am in love. 
you know, so like he has that. He's like, I lost the love of my, like he's not quite gonna drink some poison over it, but. He, he is. He's just he's despondent def- because Rosalind doesn't love him. It, uh, everything's terrible. Well, exactly. Romeo's not the only kind of overdramatic, impulsive one. We also have Juliet. So after Juliet and Romeo have been married, consummated their marriage, and Romeo is in exile, the next morning her parents are like, Surprise! You're going to marry Paris tomorrow! Aren't you excited? So she runs to Friar Lawrence. And... You know, she's like, what are we going to do? And he's like, it's fine, we'll figure it out. And she goes, tell me not, friar, that thou hearst of this, unless thou tell me how I may prevent it. If in thy wisdom thou canst give no help, do thou but call my resolution wise, and with this knife I'll help it presently. Like, she's in his office like, well, time to end it. Like, (laughs) calm down. And it's not even, it's actually not even tomorrow. It's like Thursday next. Like, she has a few days. Yeah. Like, she has a few days to figure this out. Or at least, like, they have time. Like, I think even Friar Lawrence is like, calm down. Yeah. Yeah. She, they, she does jump to that real quick. Yeah. And, that, and that's where I was like, well, no wonder you two immediately committed suicide. Like, neither of you know how to deal with any sort of issue. Yeah. There's no patience there. There's just impulsiveness. Understanding how young people feel, how teenagers feel. I get where being in an actual high-stakes situation, they jump to suicide. And that, to me, is the tragedy of the play. Is that their parents' feud, you know, that we never even know what they're mad about. Because, and, and that's intentional, it doesn't matter. They're feuding. That feud puts them in a situation where they feel there's no way out. And that is the tragedy of the play. However, had they not been teenagers, they might have, like, waited a minute. Yeah. They might have, you know, like, not immediately been like, well, Juliet's dead, time to off myself. And then Juliet wakes up and is like, well, Romeo's dead, time to stab myself. Yeah, no. And then Friar Lawrence runs in like, oh no! (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Hey guys, I've got great news. Oh no! (laughs) Oh, my plans have got awry. Who could have foreseen this? Oh. Oh shoot, am I going to get blamed for this? That's why he blames the parents. Oh, like, it's yeah. your fault. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. mine. I had nothing to do with this. Nothing to do with this Poor at all. Love. Young Mm-mm. people in love. The children of the richest families in town, I had nothing to do with their deaths. <laughs> oh, you terrible people. You terrible people. Not oh. me. I'm a great person. Not me at all. I'm a friar. Friar Lawrence. We should do a whole separate podcast on Friar Lawrence and why he's terrible. We should do a sitcom on Friar Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you mean. They're caught up in what what is the, you know, the first flowering of love. But it's not the kind of deep-rooted affection that we see in real life or in other Shakespeare plays. Well, and I think that what for me was striking was 
the difference in reading Romeo and Juliet as a young person and as an adult. When you read it as a young person, the tragedy is that, you know, they, their parents wouldn't let them be together because their love was so pure. You know, like... Yeah. Oh, this this purest love was not allowed to shine. Exactly. And, and reading it as, a, as an adult, the tragedy is that their parents' hatred, their parents' feud made the stakes so high that they felt there was no way out. Yeah. You know, that they didn't know how to properly deal with what they were feeling and there was no safe space for them to express it. Because even Friar Lawrence, like, well, supportive of the marriage, like, has a definite ulterior motive. Oh, yeah. He says it, that he's hoping to keep these families from coming to blows. I think that there are much better representations of love in Shakespeare than Romeo and Juliet. And I think that it's odd to me that they are held up as kind of the bar to reach. You know what I mean? Well, like, it's it's hard to move past idealized love because remember, like th- at every point in the play that they interact, their love is idealized. And I think it's easy, especially if you're not looking at it through a critical lens, to say, yeah, that's that's the ideal love because it's entirely idealized. And it's hard to get past that until you're actually reading it, seeing it, uh, you know, and looking at other representations of love like Orsino and Viola, and like Benedict and Beatrice, like Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. She's very supportive of his long-term goals. <laughs> yes. Um, well, and as you were talking, I was even thinking back to the Shakespeare in the Park production we saw last summer of Romeo and Juliet. Um, by the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company. And in that, you know, there was, you know, the moment at the end, they had Juliet wake up right before Romeo lost consciousness and died. Mm -hmm. So he died knowing she was really alive. And I remember watching that and that had that was the first production I saw do that I know other productions have done it you know before them but that that was the first time I had seen it done and feeling just that deep gut punch of like oh no yeah because while we as the audience can sit there and be like Romeo, you just wait a minute. Like, having that moment of realization within the character of Romeo going, oh my god, what have I done? Yeah. You know. Uh, I remember that. Doesn't doesn't Romeo plus Juliet do that too? The Boz Lerman? Is that... I don't think so. I thought they did. 
haven't seen that one in a while. I don't remember. If they did it, it wasn't to the same effect. Because I remember specifically with the live performance, like being like, no! Yeah. You know, and, and maybe it was just that. They, it might, not, might have just been that they did a good job of it. Not to throw shade at Boz Lerman. Alright, well, this is going to be a shorter episode, but I feel like we've exhausted the topic. So anyway, Romeo and Juliet. Probably mostly Hornly teenagers. Hornly? Hornly! Those Hornly teenagers. (laughs) Oh no, more horns! Hashtag Hornly teenagers. Uh, Anyways, we like the romances and the comedies. Because we're grown-ups. Because we're grown-ups. We're the lame grown-ups now. Thus ends another episode of Breaking Bard. Please join us next time as we discuss the Essex Rebellion, my favorite failed rebellion. If you want to make sure you don't miss that or any future episodes, make sure to hit subscribe. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star review and sharing with your friends. For all the Shakespeare fun in the meantime please check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at ripegoodscholar. That's all for now. See you next time. And remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>